Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Three Point Landing. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about uh, DC Comics and the changing nature of comic book distribution. And then after the break, we're going to discuss the big PlayStation 5 reveal that happened last Thursday. And let's right. take it away. I forgot to introduce ourselves. <laughs> no, wait. Point, okay, so the, in, the, the intro point, came we're, in. We're three-point landing. You know who we are by this point. <laughs> unless you're new, in which case, um, sorry. <laughs> no, not sorry. Welcome. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome. <laughs> welcome. Welcome. You we love see. you people. You can't see I have uh, I have showy hands like the like the dealer from Agrabah. <laughs> Oh boy. Have we done more episodes in quarantine than we did back when <laughs> I, the world made some kind of sense? I, I know, know I've asked this before, but it kind of feels like it now. This is this is my co-host Misha Lakaris asking once again, week after week, whether or not we've been doing <laughs> <laughs> too many episodes oh. in quarantine. <laughs> I miss the world. <laughs> So the world's still upside down and we don't know which way is up and it's affected the way that we have been consuming a lot of the media that we would normally be consuming in our, you know, in our daily lives. Whether or not, whether you're a geek or just a regular person who enjoys TV, uh, broadcasts, regular movie showings, or even just going down to the bookstore, you know, nothing is the same now. And, um... Uh, one area where that's most keenly felt, especially in my case, because um, you know I, I I I work with Comic Odyssey, so it's it's I'm not gonna lie. I mean, it's hit us hard because comic book store culture is what uh, was a formative part of my nerd experience. Okay, um, I I love the atmosphere that 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 feeling that you're with people of like minds, and now. You're not allowed to be near people because yeah, of social distancing, because of quarantines, because most malls don't even operate all day anymore. And it's, it's, it's become quite a challenge just to consume uh, or just even to get regular issues. But so, wait, 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 wait. So for, for the listeners uh, who don't know, who may or may not know, comic books are still being sold in magazine monthly form. Am I right? Yeah, pretty much. 24, 32, 64 pages uh, once a month, uh, depending on the frequency. And, and, um, and they, they, they generally come in multiple parts. So you can read part one this month, part two the month after, and all that. And right now we're having a distribution problem. That's the thing. Okay. Um, Diamond uh, Diamond Distribution, basically the largest comic book distribution outlet in the world, um, announced early on in the quarantine when the pandemic hit that they wouldn't be shipping any books out, any comic books out until maybe July or August. And now it's June. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. about a month, three weeks ago, a month ago, I, I don't know. I can't tell. Time has no meaning in this vacuum. <laughs> um, <laughs> Time has no meaning in this vacuum. Um, DC Comics announced... um, DC Comics, of course, one of the two largest publishers, uh, with uh, the other one being Marvel, announced that they would go into comic book distribution for themselves 
to make sure that their books got into readers' hands. Now, mm. on paper, that sounds great because Diamond has been um, a monopoly pretty much for as long as I can remember. As long as um, I think but, for both of us who, if I recall correctly, Diamond and the whole comic book distribution didn't, in its present form, didn't solidify until like the early 80s. So technically, for as long as we've lived. <laughs> I don't know, man. Uh, you, you can remember a f- whole lot farther back than I do because you're older. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I, uh, I'm I not going not- to assume what events you were privy to. <laughs> <laughs> I promise not to get too much into this, but uh, I think what we're missing out here also is that DC's hand is kind of forced into the situation. Uh, not necessarily this specific decision, but they're forced to do something because Diamond isn't just not shipping comics this July, until July or August. They're also not paying for comics. And that means that the income that comic book publishers are supposed to generate and the compensation that they're supposed to give to writers and artists isn't flowing as normal. That's absolutely true because what yeah. would have been a regular revenue stream has been severely disrupted. I mean, as yeah, it has it's, been it's with frozen. a lot of other industries, a lot of other people. Every, I mean, everyone's hurting now and mm-hmm. that there's no denying that. And while e-commerce has been good to a lot of industries, the comic book industry has had a bit of a challenge because what can you sell online if the products just aren't there to be sold? And yeah. if Diamond wasn't going to be getting them to uh, retail outlets, then I guess the corporate overlords who own DC Comics decided that something had to give. What so really AT and T Warner yeah. basically? <laughs> oh, good God! Here's the thing, okay? Um, DC Comics for some reason was in a hurry. Some people say that it's out of corporate greed that they're trying to force the hands of everybody involved. But mm-hmm. uh, what I said earlier was they didn't reckon on the inherent challenges of distributing comic books worldwide. Because again, let's face it, those books are read all over the world. Um, going back to your childhood in the late 70s. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you know what? I'll, think, I'll, I'll accept that. I'll accept, I'll accept any statement about my childhood now. I think we should just keep my age completely nebulous now. If you say I was born in the 80s or 70s and 60s in any episode and it's inconsistent, I will not even <laughs> contradict you. <laughs> we'll just keep retconning this thing as we go along. Exactly. Hey, look, if Spider-Man, <laughs> if Spider-Man can have a sliding age timeline, then so can I. <laughs> Hey, if Archie could still be in high school after what, know, right? 70 freaking years. But um, okay, yeah. Back in the 60s, 70s, and whatnot, comic books, you could find them in places like um, corner drugstores or, or newsstands. Basically, yeah. or pharmacies, right? And um, the thing was, whatever books that they didn't sell, they could return to the publisher. Same as with magazines. If any of you readers out there remember what magazines look like, um, every month you get a set number of magazines or comic books. Um, if you're a newsstand owner, and if whatever you weren't able to sell, because you know how do you sell everything every time, you return them to the publisher, and it's the publisher's problem how to dispose of them, whether they pulp them or they sell them at a loss or whatever. That's the that's the publisher's problem. What they did was they started teaming up 
they came up with a new kind of distribution system, which was the direct market, which means, which meant that comic book publishers would sell directly to specialty stores at a reduced rate on the condition that those, those specialty stores couldn't send any unsold books back. So you'll get the distributed, you'll get the discounted rate, but you cannot send the excess books back. And that's mm-hmm. why comic book stores, you know, a lot of them have back issue bins, right? Where you can go look at old books, where you can pick up back issues past, from past years. Because the and inventory that they in- purchased is the inventory that they were, quote unquote, stuck with. So there's a lot of greater pressure to, um, to, to, to monetize that stock on, on some level if it doesn't get sold within its natural release window. And whereas, and you can help me with this one, if I understand correctly, the newsstand distribution model, the way it works is, you know, they didn't just have, to, when they returned the books and the books were marked unsold, those things ended up getting pulped and turned into recycled yeah. paper. Yeah. Because comics books were treated as disposable. They were treated like, you know, like, 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 a, a, they were ephemeral culture, meaning if you didn't catch up to the story this week and nobody, and nobody had expressed an interest in it, they would just like, Turn that in, and then like you know, you snooze, you lose kind of situation. Next, the next time, the next issue that follows up will just have to be read in isolation. Absolutely, unless you want to get the trade paperback, which could come along anytime from like a year or two from now. Yeah, and I suspect um, this affected storytelling as well because when you think about the comic books that usually like were the staples of the of the of the newsstand model of the drugstores and supermarkets, these are comic books that are famous for their sort of like. Uh, d- disposable storylines like Archie's, you know, where no matter what issue you pick up, no matter what week, it doesn't have any continuity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. But anyway, I'm sorry and for getting sidetracked. No, there, it's okay. <laughs> I just, you know, wanted no worries, to like illustrate man. how that newsstand model and direct market model like really shaped stuff. But yeah, going well, on. Uh, basically, so the direct market method of distribution was created. And around the United States, around the world, different distributors would handle different regions until eventually around the early 80s, late 70s, um, one guy actually had a monopoly. And believe it or not, back in the day, federal authorities would actually take monopoly seriously to the point that they actually ended up breaking that up. But over the years, um, over the years, you know, as uh, mergers happened, buyouts happened, eventually um, one company came to rule over all the others in what is essentially another, another sounds, monopoly, really. Sounds Soron-esque, my friend. <laughs> okay, let me finish, okay? So Diamond Select emerged at the top of the heap, Diamond Distribution. They um, have, by and large, been shaping how American comic books reach the world uh, readers all around the world over the last 30, 35 years. Marvel Comics actually tried to break into distribution on their own in the early to mid-90s and it nearly bankrupted. No, it did bankrupt them. That's part of the reason that they had to sell off all their movie properties to different studios just mm-hmm. to you know try and stay alive. But lately, because Diamond made their announcement that they weren't going to be shipping books until the whole pandemic thing had passed and that they weren't going to be paying off any of their creditors. And DC decided to forge their own path now. It's left um, people in the comic book industry wondering what form or, and I'm sorry to say it, what the new normal is going to look like for our beloved medium. Because let's face it, 
comic books were already in trouble even before the pandemic because honestly, people don't like to read anymore. At least not yeah. physical media and not anything, you know, longer <clears throat> than half an article or even a headline these days. Let's, let's be <laughs> honest. The thing about it is that it's really easy to complain about the situation that the comic books are in right now. But by and large, I'm inclined to believe, I mean, you know, uh, I don't have the inside track, but I'm inclined to believe that Diamond operates as kind of like a benevolent version of whatever it is, you know, of the performs its role as de facto comic book distribution in the most benevolent terms possible. Um, the real problem is the fact that everything is frozen and I can really relate and understand that DC doesn't want to be left holding the bag when it comes to compensating these people. But there's got to be like some kind of decision that could be made uh, that is different from, yeah, we're going to get just into our own distribution that doesn't negatively affect retailers and consumers. You know what I mean? I don't, well, I, I won't, I don't know what that, that decision or that solution is. I cannot imagine it but it's definitely like okay dc wants to get into this for a very legitimate reason but what is the version of that 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 doesn't hurt (laughs) (laughs) don't don't get me wrong okay i mean diamond distribution has been good to a lot of the smaller outlets um Uh especially when especially when it comes to you know um deadlines and whatnot um yeah but the mere fact that they are the biggest game in town does leave people high and dry. So I can kind of understand where DC is coming from with regard to their corporate overlords who paid a great deal of money for Warner Brothers because this mm-hmm. is AT&T, you know, they, they bought the whole thing and that <laughs> included DC Comics. So of course, they're going to try and make a buck any way that they can. The only trouble is the timing, the timing is terrible, honestly. At a time when every business on earth, pretty much, unless you know, you're know you in um, Amazon, is hurting, it just seems to be spectacularly bad judgment to essentially screw over people who have been loyal to your brand for decades mm-hmm. um, with unleashing a new business model right when we are least capable to adapt it. You know? Yeah. It's like, it's like a chicken. I feel like there's like it's trapped between two situations, which is like, this is not the ideal time to suddenly switch business models when everything Mm -hmm. is so sensitive in an industry that has already been historically precarious, like you said. But it's almost like DC has done this because things are sensitive for them. That actually makes some kind of sense, but I really don't know what their long game is going to look like because if they were trying to effectively destroy what's left of the comic book industry, they could not have chosen a better way to do it than to do this. Because if they've essentially taken out, what, 40% of what Diamond Distribution handles, by doing that, you're effectively crippling them because there's no way how are they supposed to recover that. It's not like there's another big publisher, uh, a publisher out there who can take up the slack. Mm. And as far as DC is concerned, you know, they haven't even completely thought all the way through how to get to smaller markets or territories. Never mind kind of, third world. 
Like, I don't know, but really, they've actually reactivated their ties with Diamond in a limited capacity just to reach <laughs> the markets that they didn't th- consider when they made their grand announcement. Yeah, yeah. Like, I remember you were talking to me about this last week around, yeah, last week. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at my records. Yeah, you were talking to me about this like about uh, nearly two weeks ago. And right. you were saying, like, oh, we want to talk about this, but let's see. Let's, I, I suggested that we wait and see how the sh- situation shapes up. So that we don't right, end up like, right. you know what I mean? Yeah, and and lo and behold, DC has come running back to Diamond in you know to to to, to answer some of those capacity. challenges. Yeah, in your right. limited capacity to answer some of those challenges because that like, it had not know, foreseen. Launching your own distribution service, like what Marvel did um, thirty years ago, would be challenging enough under the best of circumstances. But to do it at a, <laughs> at a time when you know. Air freight is ridiculously expensive because there are fewer flights, for example. Mm -hmm. Customs are backed up for weeks, if not months, because of, you know, backlog. Because shipments everywhere are being delayed. DC just opened themselves up to a world of challenges that they most likely did not anticipate. And that's Mm -hmm. already on top of overall global declining, declining readership. And... I don't know what they were going for. Maybe they thought they'd make more money in the long run or they saw a way to make a buck, but it just seems spectacularly ill-advised. The way I see it is it's like, it's similar. Like, I mean, this is going to be kind of funny. Like the way I see it, it's like, it's like a kid who's saying, yeah, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go. I don't like your rules, you know, so I'm going to go and- (laughs) I'm going to run away uh, from home. (laughs) Yeah, I'll run away from home. You know, I'm going to go make it on my own and then, you know, and then coming back the because they, just, they realized how hard it was going to be anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I think there's a couple of Calvin Hobbes strips that run exactly like that. <laughs> but Are you, you know, kidding? It's, a, it's the parable of the prodigal son. Although I'm not exactly sure if Steve Jeppy of Diamond Comics will be slaughtering a whole cow for DC. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully things work out. In the end, right? Because heaven knows that if we've ever needed escapism in our lives, this this is this looks like it'll be it. Well, I want I want to I want to tie this up a little bit, and and I think this is a sensitive subject for you who who is and a, a legally and professionally sensitive subject for someone like you who is involved in the comic book business. Which is, how do you feel like these events and this decision will impact? The, the Philippine context, the local context of uh, comic book consumption, which is already precarious since so many people uh, have either switched to trades or just, you know, seek other means of at- looking for comic books. Um, for me, okay, I've been saying this for a while now. As I said, these are times when we need escapism more than ever. We need characters, themes, narratives that we can look up to or be inspired from. And I genuinely believe even before this pandemic happened that as long as you don't insult the audience's intelligence, as long as you find good, engaging ways to tell stories that actually touch people and actually have something to say, no matter how ridiculous or dated the concepts may be, people will find a way to consume your material. But if the barriers to said material become so insurmountable that consuming them is an even bigger luxury than it already was, then I'm just 
worried that people might actually move on and find somewhere else to get their entertainment, to get their fix, or just to get away from the realities of everything that ills the world at this point. Hmm. I mean, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Uh, I don't even agree. I totally understand where, you know, where you're coming from. You know, uh, the culture of comics is, has always, always been under threat by precarious market forces, and this doesn't help anybody. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, again, mm-hmm. even under the best of times, it yeah. would have been difficult to enter into a new distribution model. Um, mm-hmm. Doing it now, it just seems mm-hmm. insane. Personally, I think, I, I, my, my opinion is, I think, you know, seeking to diversify the, distribu- the, the physical distribution model of comics is, is an endeavor worth pursuing. It's just not one that should be pursued right now, necessarily. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely I would, right. Would, it would, personally, I think it would be interesting if this kind of endeavor was a group effort. If, let's say, uh, let's say only press and, and Dark Horse and, and Kitchen Sink, like those publishers gathered together and said, you know what, let's, let's, let's get our own you know, publisher. Uh, the, the indies, right. Yeah. yeah. That could be interesting, yeah. actually. That would be interesting. But, I, I mean, mean I'm, not a, I'm not a market expert. I'm just saying it's like, Having multiple people try to figure it out, this, multiple corp institutions try to figure out the solution together instead of simply just one doing it is, I think, a much more tenable proposition. I think I agree. Mm-hmm. But then again, I've always, I've, if this whole lockdown thing, if the last three, four months have taught me anything, it's that I am never, I will never cease to be surprised by the industries that are managing to make silk purses out of a sow's ear by the people who have been forced to, you know, essentially think about new ways to do what they've always been doing. So (laughs) maybe this is something that was a long time coming. Maybe this was something that was inevitable. But I'm having, I, I, I have to be honest, I don't see how this will end well at this point, but okay, fine. If they can do something with it, if they, uh, if they can make a go of it, then, well, I guess we'll just have to see what happens. Yeah. And I think that about uh, wraps it up for uh, this segment of the podcast. Um, we'll take a five-minute break. Well, that five-minute break is going to be invisible to you listeners, but we're going to take a five-minute break, and then we're going to come back to talk about the PlayStation 5. By and large, though, comic books are not the only industry that have been disrupted um, by what's going on in the world today. Last week, uh, Sony unveiled the PS5, finally, to kind of a mixed response. But I think what's especially telling of the state of the world right now is that this was not the originally scheduled reveal for it. Um, If I'm not mistaken, it was was actually postponed because of uh, what's been going on, right? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a big postponement, but it was a definitely a postponement. We were, they, were supposed to, uh, they were supposed to reveal the console on June 5, and now my cats are yelling when we've started it's recording. Okay. <laughs> I guess I they you. did not like that delay. They were not fans of that. Yeah, I guess they're part of the show now. But anyway, yeah, so June 5, <laughs> um, was when they were supposed royalties. to show, reveal the PlayStation 5. But instead, uh, they postponed it to June 12. Yeah, it was our that Independence was Day. That was the 12th. <laughs> yep. That was Independence yeah. Day. Totally. And just 
just to be honest, perfectly honest, what are your first impressions? I was really, I wouldn't, the word, I, I wasn't underwhelmed. I was just kind of, I was mostly like indifferent. That's what it was. Like, I mean, I made oh, it man. known to the point that I'm not, I'm not 100%. I'm very critical of the PlayStation brand for reasons that I've not had the opportunity to discuss on this show necessarily. But when you open up your, 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 your PlayStation 5 event with a real showing the history of PlayStation, you know, you, and they go from generation to generation and then you go to PS4 and it's like, oh, here are some excellent games, but like fewer excellent games than there were in the past generations. Right, uh, right. And then fine, okay, you know what? I can let that roll over my back. You know, I don't want to, I don't, I try not to be too hypercritical about that. And then they're like, all right, here's our first game and it's Grand Theft Auto Five. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> What, what, what's the word? Um, <laughs> shoot, what's the word? Um, it's not remastered. A- they're going. They're going with a different term this time. Oh, really? What is it? I don't. I didn't even notice. I said. I. I um, <laughs> shoot, I, I can't remember. But they're also doing the same thing for Spider Man. They're not calling it remastered. They're calling it something else because you know Marketing PS4 success. was where all the remastered things ended up. Yeah. Oh well, Grand Theft Auto Five will be the third gen- the third game. Uh, sorry, the PlayStation Five will now be the third co- gen- console generation to have Grand Theft Auto V. Because it <laughs> released on the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. Then it came to PC and PS4 and Xbox mm-hmm. One. Mm-hmm. And now it's coming to PlayStation 5. And I can it is confirmed. It is also coming to Xbox Series X. So I'm like, Rockstar, <laughs> what are you doing? Give us Bully 2. Give us Manhunt. Two. Oh man! Give us yeah. LA Noir two. Give us Red Dead Redemption three, even even though you just just gave us that, you know, two years ago. But another generation with Grand Theft Auto five. Jesus Christ! Uh, I'm sorry to get so th- worked up. No, it's all, so no. You're entirely it's entirely valid because, like, <laughs> if you look at video games of yesteryear, and yeah, I'm gonna say yesteryear, they used to be about trying to harness the most horsepower out of any given console, right? That was the whole premise of 8-bit, 16-bit, 32-bit, 64-bit, and whatnot. It was always about the bigger, better visuals, computing power, and whatnot. But at some point, we got to an aesthetic level, or at least a hardware level, where such differences had kind of plateaued, at least as far as gameplay was concerned. So at some point, it just became more fashionable to be doing, to be playing things safe. I mean, aside from the AAA titles, why make one AAA title when you can remake that same thing like two, three times down the road? Mm -mm. Just make it prettier with every generation. I get what you're saying. Like, okay, so number one, yeah, like it freaking sucks that we're just trying to excessively prolong the shelf life of existing (laughs) games by remaking them. They they cost a lot to make. However, I do think that overall, (laughs) for many other properties, this is actually a net positive because one of the things that's been holding back the development appreciation and discourse of video games as an art form is our inability in the console space to go back to those things. You know what I mean? Like, because let's say Siphon Filter, I don't even know why I chose that game, because Siphon Filter is playable exclusively only on the PlayStation 1 and not anywhere else. You know, I still love like, that game, though. Yeah, uh, it, it's very 
to keep it simple, it's very hard for a, a, a 2020 gamer to consume the back catalog of video gaming history. You know, and and remasters and remakes are kind of an opportunity to be able to keep that going. Now, granted, these are market-driven ways of of pushing games to the front. You know, it's basically saying, "Oh, you like that old game? Would you like to pay thirty more dollars for it again?" <laughs> I kind of get that. I, I yeah, I yeah. think I get that. Yeah, but it's better than it's 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 better than having the entire history just get kind of. Uh, uh, walled off. But, and again, this might seem somewhat hypocritical coming, hypocritical coming out of my mouth um, because you know me, I'm all for nostalgia. But at some point, you want to see media evolve. You want to see media yeah. move forward. And I don't think that the jump between PS4 and PS5 reflects that all that big of a leap. I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but uh, I was just, I, I was on the same page as you. I was, I was underwhelmed. Yeah. There was nothing that made me sit up and say, holy crap, did I just see that? Voila, mm. nothing. I mean, okay, allow me to get philosophical with you. I don't know, like, I will concede that the whole point of video games, uh, technological and, and, and artistic development isn't necessarily for everything to provoke a wow response from us automatically. You know what I mean? Because some things, some some developments and improvements are incremental. But, right. But it was a keynote. Uh, you want to put your best foot forward. Come on. Exactly. This is a this is this is this is all marketing driven. And if it's gonna be marketing driven, then you want that wow factor to happen. And uh, going back to another thing you said earlier, um, there is only so much we can do in terms of trying to impress the average consumer or even the j- I want to use the word jaded. Even the most, uh, how should I say this? The most uh, cynical, grizzled, well, grizzled. The most grizzled, like video games media person. There's, there's only so much you can do to impress them with, with graphical advances, because we are reaching a point now where advances in photorealistic or hyperrealistic graphics are becoming harder and harder to perceive every year. Remember back in the day when the PlayStation One came out, and it was like. 3D graphics, you know, and then PlayStation <laughs> 2 came out and it was like, oh my God, even like, you know, twice the color resolution, twice the twice the pixel resolution, more right, polygons, exactly. everything looks more beautiful. And right. then the PlayStation 3 came along and suddenly, holy shit, everything is cinematic now. <laughs> but here's the, I wasn't even just talking about the graphical wow factor. I'm not yeah. even talking about the aesthetics. Mm-mm. I'm just talking about like, look, even their selection of games was underwhelming. Okay. I'm not even yeah. talking about the gameplay or the, the trailers. I'm talking about the games themselves. I mean, yeah. sure. Yeah. It's nice to see Ratchet and Clank and, you know, see Miles Morales, but where are the heavy hitters? Are they yeah. that confident in their new console that they'd feel that they don't need to bring out the heavy hitters? I mean, what, what's the thinking behind this? You know, actually, I'm very. Uh, I don't know. I think you've just provoked an existential question for me in terms of like video games, which is that the more video games become mainstream, the more the face of video games uh, becomes conservative. Which You're is that say okay. give give chances to others? No, uh, what I'm saying is, it's like uh, I realize I'm looking for the same thing you are, which is something something bold, something daring in terms of gameplay and design, right? But yeah. I don't know if we can expect that anymore since for a lot of people, 
you know, like uh, like people thought people hitched the identity of a gamer to ideas of being hardcore or you know difficulty or deep complex systems to engage in and you know and 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 rich open sandboxes and stuff like that. But there is a growing generation of gamers who treat gaming as comfort food, and that's valid. You know what I mean? So for a lot of the mainstream gamers, these are people who aren't expected, who don't want to be challenged with their ideas of what video games look like. That's why these kinds of video games tend to be extremely cinematic. They tend to be very typical action-adventure material. They work in genres like racing and sports and platformers. All like These are all conservative you know, genres that everybody who has grown up with video games with can sort of wrap around comfortably. And I think that's, that is ultimately the reason why we're so unimpressed because um, when you're marketing video games and marketing a whole new generation, you don't go with something that's going to break their brains in terms of like, I don't even understand what this video game is about. I, I, I get what you're saying. That that then that yeah. makes perfect sense. I mean, fine. Um, essentially, they want to go what they want to go conservative um, with their big launch because they want they don't want people to feel threatened or overly challenged. But yeah. but isn't that all the more the perfect avenue with which to use familiar faces? And as much as I love Ratchet and Clank or even Miles Morales, I don't think they're the most familiar faces that they could have gone with. But the level of familiarity that we have with GTA V at this point is not what I mean either. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I think uh, you point to an interesting possible solution, which is that uh, if characters like Ratchet and Clank or familiar franchises like like uh, like Fallout or, right. or anything um, is a, is actually a good opportunity to leverage the, the the familiarity of that brand with something new. So let's say uh, I'm just I'm just pulling things. You know, uh, out of a hat here, but let's say Uncharted comes back, but it, this time it's a very, very like avant-garde, you know, cinematic narrative adventure, and maybe people might not understand that, but they'll be like, "All right, I can sign up for this because it's Nathan Drake." Like, use marry the brand with something new, you know, use that as an right. opportunity because right because exactly because the kind of thing that you and I are looking for, like it's like. Remember Death Stranding last year? Like Death Stranding yes. was one of those games that really got talked about in the critical discourse because it looked, sounded, and was marketed like a triple A experience in terms of like how graphically beautiful it looked. It looked right, right. How much it had famous people and it was a cultural event. But when you actually played the game, it <laughs> had so many ideas that seemed drawn from the indie space from the avant-garde gaming space, because so a walking simulator where you right. manage adverse terrain and you take care of a little baby, like it's, it's a super weird game. But because the brand of Hideo Kojima is so powerful, they were able to push this experience out to people and make them want to want it. <laughs> right. Whereas and, in this case, the lineup that we have now just looks like okay, it's here. Yeah. I I yeah. will say this though. Okay, fine. I, um, I'm gonna you know. Credit where it's due. Resident Evil 8 looked kind of cool. Yeah. Resident Evil 8 looked kind of cool. And so did the new Gran Turismo. But again, there's still that... I, I wasn't... I mean, they're just, they just seem too familiar. Does that make sense? As much as I, I want... I mean, you know, again, they could have used the familiarity to introduce us to something new. 
but I think they're just giving us more of the same with prettier graphics. Uh, and that, and you know, uh, that speaks to another thing I think, which is like outside of our whole concern about how video games progress artistically and and graphically, which is the nature of the PlayStation brand. I think, which is, uh, and you know, not a lot, not a lot of people are going to like me for saying this, but I do think, you know, and so does my partner. We think that PlayStation has become complacent. Um, it has won. It is. It is quote unquote won two generations in a row already. And, right. you know, and so it's, it's, it's getting very comfortable, you know? Oh, sorry. So you're one, saying one generation. They're not, they're not anyway, hungry. I'm so sorry. They're not what? hungry. They're yeah. Not they're not hungry, hungry anymore. Yeah, you're right. They're not hungry at all. You know, when you're, when you're starving for success, it's when you really make your know, boldest choices. You know? Do you um, remember, the, do, do you remember though, like when the first one came out, everyone thought Sony was crazy. Exactly. That's you know, like uh, words. No, exactly. See, exactly. You you talked about. <laughs> I agree. You, <laughs> no, you're right. When the PlayStation One came out, nobody had nobody had any confidence in it because they're like, Sony come in to Nintendo and Sega <laughs> Well, to be fair, remember it wasn't exactly their fault. It was Nintendo yeah. being douchebags that forced their hand. Well, that's 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 backstory. <laughs> I mean, it was supposed it to be the Nintendo PlayStation until Nintendo decided, you know what? We're going to do our own thing. We don't need mm-hmm. you and what you've been developing the last couple of years. So goodbye and thanks for all the fish. <laughs> so Sony be like, you know what? We've put up in this much time, effort, and money. We may as well do something with it. We're no. Guys, I know what we're going to do today. Yeah, That's what they did. Yeah. Uh, but, and those successes have, like, you know, uh, PlayStation 1, as we all know, has become quite the legend. PlayStation 2, yeah. while not nearly being a legend, it's still, it's still you know, capitalized on the brand momentum of how awesome the PlayStation 1 was. I think mm-hmm. the PlayStation 3 definitely suffered from um, some minor like issues like the cell architecture and a bunch of technical hoo-ha I don't, I don't really want to bore our listeners with. But <laughs> by but- winning the last generation... With but in with such an overwhelming lead, and part of that is because Xbox fumbled the ball in terms of its marketing messaging and design uh, at the start of the and the console generation back in twenty thirteen. Lack of decent games at launch. Uh, not to mention just confusing the hell out of gamers as to what this device the device was for. You know, but anyway, <laughs> they're not hungry, and you know what? This has been reflected throughout the generation of PlayStation Four, which is that. So many of the things, so many, there's so many good games in the PlayStation 4, but there hasn't been much done to develop the features and the services of the PlayStation. They've had so many dongles and failures in the past, actually, if you think about what Sony mm-hmm. has done before, because they know they can afford to let services and ideas languish because they have that, that, that margin, you know, like uh, Vita TV. Even the PlayStation uh, Now streaming service was something they developed a long time ago, and then they just sort of ignored for the longest time because they were like, eh, we don't have to prioritize that, and we're not <laughs> worried. And it wasn't until Microsoft revealed that they were doing Project X Cloud, their own like Netflix for game service, and Google Stadia, and all these other things for saying like, you know what? The future of gaming is streaming, streaming, right? And that's when, so- <laughs> that's when Sony decided to open its dusty desk door and like, what's streaming? What? Oh, 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 wait, wait, wait. We have something here, and Funny you should say that. 
Yeah, funny enough. And, you know, pick it up, but, blow yeah. the dust off of it. <laughs> but, you know, you know, um, on that note, you know who's just been killing it? Like, seriously? Nintendo. Yeah. I mean, holy hell. I mean, after the disaster that was the Wii U, which I still stand by the the notion that it was just the nomenclature of the thing that screwed it in the end. And lackluster game library, I'll give you that. But it uh-uh. seems that they took every single failure from the Wii U as a learning opportunity to do better with the Switch. Mm. Well, Nintendo has always marched to the beat of its own drum. You know what I mean? Uh, part of it is because the company holds such a huge war chest of money from like generations of saving <laughs> that and classic they can franchises. Ride yeah, and they that they well sa- saving money from their own revenue. You know, what I mean, they don't they don't spend right, right. more than they than they make, and that they can afford to weather out a bad generation. It's re- I still remember right. when the Wii U came out and the Wii U start it was not successful for five years straight. People kept saying, "Oh, well, Disney buy with Nintendo. Maybe Nintendo will never make consoles ever again. Maybe another." Hey, it wasn't will. the Dreamcast. Yeah. May- Maybe PlayStation will buy Nintendo. Like all of this, like basically everybody had it in for the idea that Nintendo in its in its uh, present form would just die off due to the failure of the Wii U. And Nintendo was like, no, nah, we have like billions <laughs> of dollars here. So right, right. we'll just like wait for the next generation to really land a hit. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, the sheer variety of games on Nintendo in this day and age. It's just incredible. And the way that they designed the Switch with play in mind, clearly. I mean, beyond the traditional model of just hooking up your console to the TV and whatnot, it just shows Mm -hmm. a level of innovation that I really did not get from Sony's PlayStation 5 announcement, especially since it's something that had already been delayed for what? Two months at this point? Three months? Come on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, honestly, I think you and I have to do an episode devoted entirely to the Nintendo Switch because I have I have a lot of thoughts about Nintendo Switch. And I say this as someone who, even though he owns one, doesn't actually use it. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, for And the reason behind that, uh, which we'll get into in the future Nintendo Switch episode, stay tuned, listeners, um, <laughs> is because the way my lifestyle is arranged is contrary to what it what is the ideal Nintendo Switch user experience. You know what I mean? So it's not it's not the device's fault. It's the way I live my life. <laughs> so it's your fault. You could have just said it's yeah. your fault. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. Um, this next bit is a little bit of a low hanging fruit. It's an easy target, but you know what? I'm gonna go for it anyway. What do you think about the actual look of the damn thing of the PS5? <laughs> First of all, <laughs> I have many, many punchlines prepared for that. It looks like it looks like a console that was on its way to the Apple Store and got mugged. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's see. It looks like it fell off the set of J.J. Abrams' Star Trek, a movie that is, by the way, even though even though it looks futuristic, is eleven years old. <laughs> Holy crap! Uh, the reboot's eleven um, years old already. I. Um, I bet that super white console will look incredibly wonderful five years from now when it starts to look yellow. <laughs> Here's the thing, right? So the um, white 
the white was announced. It was, and everybody went crazy, right? There were memes left, right, and all that. But then PlayStation fans hit back. They started showing off pictures of the special editions of the alternate colors, the black, Miles Morales edition, whatnot. Are those real? Don't, Are those real? The Miles, apparently, the Miles Morales one is real, isn't it? No, Boss Logic made that. <laughs> Seriously? So it's all lies? It's all lies. Christ almighty. In they, that case, who the hell wants a white console? I mean, okay. Make no mistake. PlayStation 5 no, special fine. editions will exist. That's a guarantee. They will. But that's but, what, not what you should lead with in your keynote. Yeah. Yeah. And also, that's the, no, you know, whatever we've seen on the internet is not the legit deal. You know what I mean? Because none have been announced. All my hopes and dreams. Oh, the internet. You've lied to me no, again. No, you just have no. Your hopes and dreams will come true. You just have to wait. <laughs> well, I'll have you know, Mister Smarty Pants, that I buy my consoles within the last eighteen months of any given console's life. Because I figure, you know, by that point, the bugs have been worked out. <laughs> but also, like, okay, let's, a friend of mine put it the best way. I'm not going to buy a PS5 for the first couple of years because I'm going to let the rich beta testers work it all out first. <laughs> Honestly, uh, I, what I want to do is I want to uh, I want to see like I wait until they make like a better, more cooler, efficient model. And honestly, I'm still waiting to see what the Xbox looks like, what the situation is going to be for that. Because isn't it the wanna... thing that isn't it that log thing, the brick thing? Yeah, it looks like a, a a chimney, a black cube. Here's the funny thing. It looks okay, like I a fruit cake on its side. I could dunk on the PlayStation 5 all day. Uh, <laughs> but the funny thing about it is that I don't think I don't think this is the form factor that they want that they originally wanted for the PlayStation 5. Now You're saying they came upon like, this by accident? No, I'm saying is that they had um they had original plans and then they and then they changed the plan. Now, um, as you mentioned to me, as you complained about before, they took their sweet ass time to reveal the console. Like you felt like yeah. the, there there was a better time or a better opportunity earlier in the calendar year to have started showing off that console. And I don't like trading too much into gossip or speculation, but a rumor has it that they were going to reveal a console that looked similar to the Xbox, except Xbox showed it off first. Okay. Um, and so, okay. No, no, sorry. You had a question. No, I was going to say, so that then they decided to go with the video game version of the car that Homer Simpson designed. Wow. That's a deep cut. And you, I, I, but I you remember what that car, you remember what that car looked like, that thing that Homer designed, right? It I was a disaster. It was, it was asymmetrical. It. it had flares. It had fins. It had a weird color. <laughs> it had round areas where it should have had corners. <laughs> that, that that is exactly what Sony showed off to us. I I, I remember the, the car was called the Homer. The Homer. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Sony is releasing the Homer. Now available for pre-order. But yeah, so I wanted to talk about the console's front factor specifically, which is that <laughs> um, the whole thing that was going on, according to developers, was that... The, Cooling was an issue with the uh, with the, the last console. one, and for Actually, that kind with the of last power, three. 
<laughs> it's been a it's been an issue with the last three versions of this console. <laughs> what issues for those? And I, I want to hear from you. No, I, I, you're talking about the cooling. I, I agree completely. Yeah. Okay. So um, there's a rumor that the PlayStation 5's original design was actually shaping up to be a similar design as the Series X, which is to say, an even-sided rectangle box, <laughs> right? A brick. Okay, it's a brick. Uh, but then the Series X was shown off, was revealed before they, they, they could. And every executive above the development level at Sony proceeded to lose their shit because even though they did not copy Microsoft, there was no, they wa- no, way, no way they wanted to reveal a console that could be construed to look like they copied Microsoft. Right, right. That's that, that's the problem. And my brother even was talking to me about this. He was like, so you're telling me this is plan B? I'm like, no, because plan B presumes the plan existed before they actually had to switch to it. They didn't so have that plan. So this is a knee-jerk reaction. Yeah, it's a knee-jerk reaction. And you know, I want to emphasize that this is only rumor. It is not confirmed. But I don't use rumors lightly because there's a difference between rumors that are theory and conjecture and mere hearsay and speculation. So, in any case, I, I, I like this theory. It, it's now my head cannon. My head cannon. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny to me too because later, at a later date, uh, one, of the, one of the executives at PlayStation uh, was trying to explain, oh, why is the PlayStation 5 absolutely so big? It's actually bigger than the Xbox Series X, by the way. So, everybody who's listening today, uh, listening to this episode, you're going to have to clear out a lot of space in your living room to make room for the for PlayStation 5. Um, so anyway, uh, getting back to again, that. Again, by the time I buy one, they'll probably have a slim one. Yeah, yeah. Um, <sighs> the executive said like, oh, you know, the, the, the heat to power ratio for this console is amazing, you know? And he was saying that, trying to say like, oh, okay, because of that, we need to make the console as big as it is because heat is the necessary evil for getting that power. And I'm just like, um, are you literally trying to spin this around by making it by saying heat dissipation is the price that we must pay. Don't get me wrong; I understand why you're doing that from a technology perspective, <laughs> but you're but you also sound like you're making excuses for the form factor. I think yes. I think it's more of the latter. It, 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 <laughs> there is no defending it. Okay, it yeah. really. Yeah, I mean, I wish the console like well, but only to the extent that I wish all consoles well because a robust healthy gaming landscape filled with devices competing to give us the best services and the best experience is like a win-win-win. Well, I love your optimism, but at this <laughs> point, it is what it is. And that's what we're going to have to be looking at for the next, what, five, seven years? Good Lord. And personally, I'm enthusiastic for, well, conservative. I'm conservatively optimistic about where Xbox will be going in the next generation. In July, we will be getting another press conference from Microsoft to talk about the Xbox Series X, the future of the Xbox brand. So we may or may not do an episode about that. Um, personally, uh, for many of the reasons that you stated that have held PlayStation 5 back, I am optimistic about Xbox because they are hungry. Because they they fucking lost the last generation so bad. <laughs> They, they got lost their butts kicked. I was a loyal Xbox 360 owner. Yeah, they got their butts kicked I, so hard. And then I saw what Xbox One had to offer. I'm like, hey, PS4 is on sale. 
Yeah, and you know, and in the in the time, any anybody in games media can tell you that uh, in the time that has passed between the bungling of the Xbox One launch to the two this year, Microsoft has worked very hard to improve services, create features, and like find new ways to deliver games content and make players be able to access their game content from anywhere. You know, we're talking about the Xbox Game Pass, the Xbox Play Anywhere initiative. Promoting crossplay, um, promoting smart delivery, uh, promoting all sorts of other features, just to like make sure that you know gaming becomes more accessible across every envir- environment possible. And it's you know, I don't know if that will translate necessarily to the best generation ever for the for the console, but at least it's pushing ideas about how we play, and that's interesting to me. You know what it is. You know what it is. This whole thing with Xbox and the complacent champion and being hungry enough to want it. This is Rocky 3. This is Rocky 3. Oh, it's completely <laughs> lost on you, but you know what? I'm going to stick with it. This is Rocky I've 3. Seen, I've seen Rocky 3 <laughs> in 1987. It came out in 85. <laughs> yeah, so I saw it on LaserDisc. <laughs> and that has, been, that has been our segment on PlayStation 5. Xbox Series X, apparently, too, and Nintendo Switch. Uh, right. Yeah. And that is an episode, everybody. <laughs> Let us know in the comments how you guys have had your nerdy activities disrupted by the ongoing pandemic. Or basically, let us know how your entertainment has had to evolve given the state of the world today. It's not the prettiest world, but it's the one that we got. So um, until next time, you've been listening to Three Point Landing. I am Misha. I am Matthew. Um, We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Theme song. This episode of Three Point Landing was produced, recorded, and distributed under quarantine by Big Baby Studios. Follow us on Facebook at Three Point Landing PH.